This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. And we're back with another episode of Insidious Inspirations. This week, perhaps tackling one of the most well-known haunted cases in America. Not too much to talk about, and I don't want to spoil the episode, but I do want to give a big shout-out to our first patron, Brandon Santana. Thanks a bunch for joining us. Um, we don't have too much on our Patreon yet, but we will have some cool bonuses and behind-the-scenes episodes and much, much more coming very soon. If you're interested in becoming a patron, consider going to patreon.com slash insidiouspod. You can also find a link to our Patreon in the show notes. And without further ado, this week's episode. 1979 saw the release of a movie that chronicled a family tormented by evil spirits in their new home. This was no ordinary haunted house feature, as the marketing made clear. This one was based on a true story. Specifically, it was based on a book about a real family's battle with the supernatural, a real case that had taken the media and the American public by storm and shocked readers with its vivid imagery and blood-curdling scares. This week, we're looking at the dark and menacing inspirations behind the Amityville Horror. This is the true story of the terror that gripped the unsuspecting Lutz family and one of the most infamous haunted houses in American history. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Amityville is a small, unassuming village in New York that rests along the water, enjoying beautiful views, lovely beaches, and a reputation as the Friendly Bay Village. If you walked through Amityville without knowing much about it, you would never imagine it could be the home to a brutal murder, and one of the most memorable hauntings of all time. But as much as its residents would probably prefer Amityville to be remembered for its beaches and lakes, or its nautical park, Amityville found itself in the public eye for a much more shocking reason. On November 13, 1974, the patrons of a local Amityville bar were going about their business as usual, drinking beers, chatting about football, local gossip, and unwinding after a hard day of work. Suddenly, this peace was shattered when a young man burst in, shaking and pale, face slick with sweat. He cried out that his entire family had been shot and he needed help. This young man was 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr., Several of the bar's customers agreed to accompany the distressed man back to his house at 112 Ocean Avenue. 
They arrived at the property, and, from the outside, everything seemed fine. It was a beautiful three-story colonial house with cream-colored paint and dark shutters, equipped with a deck, a back patio, and a boathouse. It didn't look like the sort of place where anything bad could happen. But Ronald insisted that the bar patrons follow him inside. There they found something that was nothing short of horrifying. Ronald's parents, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Luis DeFeo, were lying face down, dead from gunshot wounds. A man named Joey Yusit called the police and told them that there had been a shooting. When the operator asked, anybody hurt? Joey simply responded, yeah, it's, uh, everybody's dead. After talking to an officer and explaining the dire nature of what had occurred, police were dispatched to the location. When they examined the house, they found that not only were Ronald Jr.'s parents dead, but the rest of his family had met the same fate. His siblings, Dawn, 18, Allison, 13, Mark, 12, and John Matthew, 9, were all lying face down, dead from gunshots. The police brought Ronald Jr. down to the station and proceeded to interview him. At first, he insisted that he was innocent, claiming that a mafia hitman had taken out his family. Naturally, the police had a lot of follow-up questions, mainly why a mob hitman would have any interest in this small-town family with no recorded ties to organized crime. Once the police got into the details of the interview, DeFeo's story began to fall apart. He was unable to maintain a consistent version of events, and the police considered him the prime suspect. By the next day, he had confessed, saying, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. But the story of Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s murders didn't end there. When he went to trial, things got darker and much stranger. His attorney, William Weber, insisted that DeFeo was not in his right mind and could plead not guilty by reason of insanity. DeFeo claimed to have heard demonic voices in the house, urging him to kill his family. A psychiatrist hired by the prosecution agreed that DeFeo was mentally ill, but picked apart the notion of his mental illness as a defense, insisting that he had still known what he did was wrong. The judge agreed, and DeFeo was found guilty and given six consecutive life sentences. Weber still continued to insist that something supernatural had been at play in the house, and that, though DeFeo was not in his right mind, he had been driven there by something not of this world. With the murderer convicted and in prison, and the only existing evidence of anything supernatural in the house on Ocean Avenue confined to his testimony, it seemed like the darkness was about to recede from Amityville. Unfortunately, that could not have been further from the truth. When George and Kathy Lutz signed the paperwork to purchase the house and give it a new, happier life, it was only the beginning of the nightmare. When the Lutz family discovered a massive, gorgeous three-story home for only $80,000, a fraction of what the house would normally cost, it seemed like a dream come true for the family of five. Of course, like with all things it seemed too good to be true, there was a catch. George and Kathy were informed of the house's grisly and extremely recent history, with the DeFeo murders occurring there just a year before. However, the parents had a long talk with their three children, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa, where they had explained that something bad had happened in their new house, but that they were going to move in and make it a better place. It was decided that the family could handle it, and the deal on such an incredible property was worth it. 
The family didn't really believe that the house had demons in its walls or that the location itself had somehow forced Ronald Jr. to kill his entire family. But you can never be too careful when it comes to matters of murder and evil spirits. And so, as they moved in one crisp, chilly December day in 1975, the Lutz made sure to bring a priest with them. Father Ray Pecorero joined the family to supervise and to bless the house as they moved in. He walked through the house, blessing each room as he went. At first, things went according to plan. He blessed the entryway and began to move into the rest of the house. When he reached the sewing room, something happened that was impossible to explain. As he attempted to bless the room, an invisible hand slapped him. Hard. He stumbled back from the blow, looking around for the source of the sudden violence, but he saw nothing. As he recovered, a voice boomed at him, seemingly from nowhere. Get out. Right after this encounter with an unseen, ominous warning, Father Pecorero began to feel sick. He felt feverish, his body racked with chills, and he began to cough like something heavy was sitting on his chest. He looked down at his hands and found that they were bleeding. The family ushered the priest out of the house, sending him home to get some well-deserved rest and shake off the frightening encounter. Seeing a priest get the daylight scared out of him must have driven the other families away from the house, but the Lutz family continued with their move. This was their house now, and they were not about to give it up. They would soon begin to regret that decision and wish they had taken the phantom's voice at its word. Within a few days of moving in, the Lutz family began to experience some bizarre occurrences. Most of the strange activity affected George, but some of it spread to the entire family. Some of the activity seemed like it could just be the result of living in an old house. The family had trouble getting or staying warm, feeling a persistent chill in the air inside. However, it was December in New York, and old houses are not known for being particularly well-insulated. So, they kept the fireplace burning constantly, in an attempt to make the temperate more bearable. No matter how long they kept the fire burning, or how much wood they piled on, the house stayed cold. They began to notice strange smells in the house, a foul odor that permeated the air and seemed to have no known source. There was no dead raccoon in the attic or mold on the ceiling, nothing that could have caused the stench that would occasionally waft through the house. After restless nights shivering in the freezing darkness, listening to the sounds of the front door slamming itself closed on its own, the family would get up and find the house's carpet littered with droplets of a gelatinous slime. The slime began to appear more frequently, oozing through keyholes and dripping down the walls. Like the persistent cold and the unpleasant smells, they could not find the source of the slime anywhere. Throughout all of this, George Lutz would wake up nearly every night at 3.15 a.m., the same time that the murders of the DeFeo family were theorized to have occurred. During these bouts of insomnia, George witnessed even more horrors beyond those affecting the rest of the family. One night he woke, at 3.15, as he had the nights prior, to find that his wife looked different. In the darkness, she had changed. Her eyes were sunken in. Her skin was loose and wrinkled. Her hair spread out across the pillow around her head in a curtain of white. The hands that clasped the covers on top of her were shriveled and liver-spotted. Where his wife had been lying, there was now a woman that appeared to be in her 90s. In the morning, however, Kathy was back to her youthful self. The activity didn't stop there. 
While George and Kathy were in the kitchen, they would see knives fly off of the counter on their own. George and the kids would see strange figures through the windows while they were outside, even when the house was meant to be empty. While outside with Daniel, George looked up to see a pair of glowing red eyes glaring down at the two of them from an upstairs window. They couldn't get a clear look at the creature, but its size, shape, and snout resembled a pig. One particular night was the final straw. George awoke in the middle of the night earlier than his usual 3.15 wake-up time to the sound of his children's beds moving across the floor above him. They were slamming up and down as if something was lifting each bed and then dropping it onto the floor all at once. The beds hit the floor again and again. Terrified, George tried to get out of bed to go see what was happening, but he found that he could not move. No matter how hard he tried, he could not move his arms or his legs, could not sit up and leave the room. It was as if something invisible and incredibly heavy was holding him down, preventing him from checking on the children. All he could do was lie there, listening, and hope that it would stop soon. At some point, George must have drifted off to sleep, because he woke up again a few hours later. The sounds from above had gone quiet, but there was no relief to be found. He looked over to see if his wife was still asleep and found her levitating above the bed. When he woke her up, she fell back onto the bed. This was all too much. Whatever was targeting them in the house, it had gone too far. The Lutz family had had enough. The next morning, on only their 28th day in the house on Ocean Avenue, Kathy, George, and the kids packed their bags and left, with only three days' worth of clothes apiece. They left a refrigerator full of food and closets full of clothes behind. Their material things were not worth spending another second in that house. So the family of five threw their small bags in the car and left the haunted house behind. Even though the Lutz family was out of the house, their story was far from over, and their supernatural experience was about to capture the imagination of the entire country, for better or for worse. Next, we learn more about how the Lutz family's harrowing experience became a national headline and drew the attention of believers and skeptics alike. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. And now, back to our show. 
It didn't take long for word of the Lutz family's ordeal to spread, especially when they were fleeing a house that had already been in the news following the DeFeo murders. Journalists, locals, and paranormal researchers all had their curiosity piqued by the story of a family that had moved into a house tainted by tragedy, and had not even lasted an entire month before moving out in a panic. Two months after the family moved out, reporter Laura Didio got permission to put together a group of psychics and investigators that would stay in the house and look for evidence of the Letts family's claims. The group, which included Didio, as well as Lorraine Warren, of The Conjuring fame, spent a night exploring the various rooms of the house in search of spiritual activity. Didio referred to this event as a psychic slumber party, but there were no pillow fights or bowls of popcorn to be found. They weren't watching a movie based on a true story. They were investigating it. Lorraine Warren felt an overpowering sense of horrible depression in the house that stuck with her long after the slumber party had concluded. As they walked through the house, the researchers took time-lapse photos of the upstairs landing. They looked over these photographs later, and while most of them were completely normal, Didio saw the face of a young boy in one of them. The childlike figure appeared to be looking out from within one of the bedrooms. Meanwhile, as life returned to relative normalcy for the Letts family, George became consumed with the thoughts of the DeFeo murders. He wondered if the activity in the house that had driven his family out had also been responsible for the violence that Ronald Jr. had committed against his own family. Deeply disturbed by the idea that Ronald Jr. could be rotting away in prison for something that had been out of his control, George reached out to defense attorney William Weber. Unbeknownst to George, Weber was already in the process of negotiating with publishers about a book on his client's story. The introduction of George and Kathy's ghost story would make for an interesting addition to the book. And so, Weber decided to meet with the couple. They began the night casually, speaking about the events of the haunting in a relatively reserved and straightforward manner. However, as the night wore on, the three drank together and chatted, making their way through four bottles of wine between them, and the conversation turned towards creative brainstorming about a potential book collaboration between them. The night grew later, and the group grew bolder, throwing out ideas to heighten the drama of the haunted house story. According to Weber, he suggested implying that the mysterious green slime in the house was demonic in origin. He didn't believe their story in the slightest, seeing it only as a business move on the part of the couple. George and Kathy bristled at pressure from Weber to put a book together and to guarantee a share of their potential profits to DeFeo. They canceled any plans to write a book with him and instead moved to California and collaborated with author Jay Anson. Together, they produced the 1977 book The Amityville Horror, which was released with the words, A True Story, printed in massive red letters across the book's cover. The book was a massive hit, selling over 6 million copies and resulting in 13 printings. It was then adapted into a major motion picture by the same name, starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. This all seems like it would have been a massive windfall for the family, but they made one mistake. They did not sign a contract with Anson, and the entire process only made them around $300,000, in spite of the millions grossed by the book and the movie alike. With the publication of the book, the Lutz family's story was not over. In fact, there were more horrors in store for them, though those horrors were not supernatural, but rather the horror of existing in the public eye. As their story, in all of its various versions, became more and more popular, the family found themselves facing a great deal of scrutiny. 
Skeptics pointed out differences between the various accounts of the events in the house, changes between the Letts family's original story, the book, and the film adaption. While the Letts family was coping with their newfound fame and infamy, Weber was continuing to work on his own book. During his research process, he hired a professor of paranormal psychology and ghost hunter named Hans Holzer to examine the house. In 1977, Holzer arrived on Ocean Avenue with an unnamed medium in tow and set about trying to contact spirits inside the house. The medium went into a trance and claimed to make contact with a Native American chief who was angry that the house had been built on a sacred burial ground. Members of the Montuck tribe of Long Island spoke up and disputed this claim, pointing out that they have never had a burial ground in Amityville. Additionally, the invocation of the horror trope of the ancient native burial ground has been pointed out to be derivative and racist. Weber is hardly a reliable source on the events in Amityville, dismissing the Letts family's version of events even as he attempted to cash in on his own. He told reporters that he and the Lutzes had cooked up details of the eventual book together, including the famed green slime, and the swarms of flies which were, according to him, inspired by the original DeFeo murder scene. Determined to see his version of the story published, Weber eventually released a version of events in Good Housekeeping, written by the freelance writer he had originally hired to write his book. The Letts family sued for an invasion of privacy as they had not provided any permission for this account to be published, and their suit was settled in 1979. Not too long after they sued Weber, the Letts family would find themselves on the receiving end of a lawsuit from the new occupants of their old, very temporary home. In April of 1977, the Cromarty family moved into the house on Ocean Avenue. A week after they moved in, the Good Housekeeping article came out, and the Cromarty family's new home was disturbed, not by ghosts, but by tourists and paranormal enthusiasts. Five months later, when the Amityville Horror released, the disturbances got even worse. Though the Cromartys never experienced a single ghostly apparition or phantom sound, they were haunted by unwelcome human visitors. People would knock on the door all day and often throughout the night. When they were not allowed inside, sometimes they would become violent, yelling curses and death threats at the family, and even claiming to be witches. Others were loud, disorderly drunks, breaking bottles and shouting incoherently as the family tried to sleep. One night, Jim Cromarty woke up at around 3 a.m. to find a man with a bugle playing taps on the front lawn. Not knowing what else to do, Jim threw open the window and began applauding the late-night serenade, calling out, Kid, you got a real good sense of humor. Finally, the Cromartys got sick of living in a haunted house museum without their consent, and sued the Lutz family, Anson, and the book publisher for $1.1 million. They especially wanted to have the subtitle of the book, A True Story, removed from future publications. The subtitle remained, and the suit was settled for an undisclosed amount in 1982. So, what happened to everyone? Ronald Defoe, the Lutz family, and the supposed haunted house? Ronald Defoe died in prison in 2021 while serving his prison sentence at the Sullivan Correction Facility in New York. Kathy and George Lutz divorced in 1988, and Kathy died in 2004 of emphysema, while George passed away from heart disease in 2006. As for the Lutz children, they tend to stay out of the spotlight, especially their daughter Missy. Though Missy has never spoken publicly about the supposed haunting, Christopher and Daniel have each offered their own take on the events of the Amityville horror. In 2013, 
the now grown-up Daniel Lutz appeared in a documentary titled My Amityville Horror. In it, he does not deny the supernatural occurrences in the house, but he emphasizes a different kind of terror that he was living with every day, in the form of his abusive father, George. Whether or not anything ghostly ever took place within the house's walls, George's cruel and unpredictable behavior was enough to keep his family locked in a state of fear. However, he did not only blame George for the trauma he underwent in that house, stating, Evil demonic spirits. I know they exist. The documentary's director, Eric Walter, is open to the possibility as well, telling Newsday, I'm not a believer in what happened, but I'm not an outright skeptic. I believe something happened to these people, but we do not know what it was. Christopher spoke publicly about the happenings in the house in 2005, stating that not a single portrayal of the events he lived through, the movies, or the book, was accurate. He made sure to clarify that the haunting was not a hoax, but, like Daniel, placed the blame at George Lutz's feet. George, Christopher claimed, was going out of his way to bring supernatural influences into the house. He would deliberately begin chanting, attempting to summon spirits into their home. Of George's version of the events, Christopher had this final word to say. He points his finger at the house and says there's something evil in there. Fingers should be pointed at what he had done. He's a perpetrator and an instigator. As for the house, its interior has been restored and updated and its address has been changed. It has had multiple different owners over the years and was purchased in 2017 after being listed at $850,000. In spite of this address change, fans of the film, the book, and the story of the Lutz family's personal horror continue to flock to the house, desperate for a glimpse of the historic evil that once took hold of it. Though the house's new owners have not reported any supernatural activity in the home, nor have any of the owners since the 70s, it seems that the story of the Lutz family will never truly die. Like a malevolent spirit, it lingers over the house, buried beneath its floorboards and seeping through the walls, reminding all who enter it of the horrors that occurred there. So, even as those who witnessed it have died or faded into obscurity, the Amityville Horror lives on. Our host is Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit insidious.show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.